You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM. This is The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is grappling with the consequences of systemic underinvestment in the energy sector. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Absolutely wonderful to be here. Good morning, thank you, So let's start off with systemic underinvestment in energy. What does that mean exactly, and how is it playing out these days? These days, experts are speaking of an energy crisis. And a crisis it has become. Uh, it felt like a bit of a personal victory yesterday for me to find gas for uh, $2.17 a liter. Uh, but, you know, prices have been skyrocketing, uh, hitting the wallets of families across the country. Uh, of course, OPEC and OPEC Plus are committing to substantial cuts in their production. And as an effective oil cartel representing the majority of oil producing nations, they have the power to do that. Uh, and that's going to drive prices up even more. Uh, that's a clear bid to profit from the dire shortages of energy products that have been triggered by the disruption in Europe's energy supply, uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And as oil and gas are more expensive, electricity demand is also growing around the world, causing a cascade of other demand challenges. Uh, just the other day, the CEO of Chevron, uh, Mike Wirth, uh, and Chevron is the world's second largest energy super major, producing almost of the world's oil supply, Uh, he pointed to years of underinvestment in uh, new oil production. Essentially, you need to keep drilling. Uh, You need to uh, invest in new wells and new processing infrastructure, uh, upgrade uh, existing ones to uh, keep up with the current demand. Uh, And the demand is very high. 80% of the world's energy needs are met by fossil fuels. Uh, He also identified the simultaneous underinvestment in renewable energy to the tune of trillions of dollars that have yet to be spent uh, and would need to be spent uh, to provide credible alternatives to a world that's so overwhelmingly dependent on oil and gas. Uh, So like many business leaders and independent analysts, he's saying it's time for an honest conversation about how we use energy and the pace of transition, Uh, decisions we're making about the kinds of cars we drive and how energy intensive our lives are. And, uh, you know, are you going to be flying somewhere soon? Do you uh, believe that we need to be acting on climate change? Are you making the choices that are consistent with that? Those are pretty important. And uh, smart energy companies are quickly realizing, have already realized this potential in new fuel sources, but um, they also know that consumer attitudes and preferences are ultimately going to be the real determinant of how energy is used and produced worldwide. And in basic terms, what Europe is seeing right now, uh, which we're seeing uh, trickling down uh, over here in North America is a result of poor geopolitical risk management, uh, failure to adequately diversify energy supply relative to ambitions, and over a decade of underinvestment in conventional infrastructure. So while we use energy products um, that are fossil fuel-based, it's simply madness to rely on countries whose self-interests don't always align with ours to be reliable suppliers of the products that we need. Even the United States, our closest ally, is going to put the United States first. You know, just look at vaccine procurement, uh, personal protective equipment during the pandemic uh, when they started producing vaccines. um, They were diverting supply to ensure that the American market was served first, even when there were agreements in place with countries like Canada. We had to go to the European Union and beg our allies producing vaccines there to ensure that Canadians could receive them. Um, But ultimately, on the energy front, this is going to be a long and painful winter, likely many years to come of high costs and consumer stress. And some of the inflationary forces we've seen coming from the capital and labor market disruptions caused by the pandemic and these 
most more recent acute shock from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they're being counterbalanced by spiky interest rates. So while that helps control inflation, uh, Central Bank, uh, Bank of Canada is making those decisions, it does hurt borrowers. And Canadian households borrow a lot. More and more families that are due for mortgage refinancing are going to be hit really hard with costs that they can't afford, causing some to even lose their homes. Uh, but essentially, this is all connected, and we need to be focused on solutions, not just incremental band-aids in this space. Separate from this, we've previously chatted about the BC NDP leadership contest. Has there been any news on it? Well, this is a race that has been deeply contested. Uh, the party apparatus as a whole is backing the current Attorney General, uh, DVDB. Uh, his opponent, uh, Angelia Paterai, is an environmental campaigner who ran for the federal NDP in the last general election. And um, despite EB having fairly substantial caucus support, I believe almost every member of the NDP, the governing NDP caucus, has uh, uh, come in to support him, he was massively outpaced by a putterized team in the sign-up process. Um, and the certain fear that the center of the party feels now is definitely playing out. Uh, just a little while ago, the BC NDP asked the BC Green Party to provide its membership list to an N- independent third party to enable them to identify people who may have been ineligible to uh, vote in the race. A um, couple of other you know, nuances there, but that's an unprecedented uh, request. And uh, they also want to prove whether her campaign could have been engaged in organized activities related to things like dual membership that ultimately could be disqualifying for her as a candidate. That's essentially where things are headed. And if the BCE NDP doesn't transfer from this race, I'd be really surprised. Um, but as a number of commentators have said this week, this all could have been avoided if the incumbent powers didn't take things for granted and for a democratic party to be so desperate to narrow the field in this way speaks volumes to their fundamental failure to engage and sign up new people, engage with British Columbians in a way that would enable them to avoid this problem in the first place. Now, earlier this week, Alberta's new premier, Daniel Smith, had some choice comments about discrimination. Tell us about those remarks. Yeah, her words were along the lines of saying that unvaccinated Canadians are the most discriminated group she has ever known. Really? Seriously? Like, I, I, I still can't fully process that. I saw it and I kind of chuckled like, no, no, that, that can't be what she actually said. Uh, but yeah, literally, um, obviously, this is an incredibly insulting thing to everyone who faces real discrimination, particularly for immutable characteristics like race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, indigeneity. And Canada has a very complex and often tragic history of discrimination and colonial violence and dispossession. Everyone of my generation learns a little bit about this in school, um, you know, particularly coming from BC. Uh, we hear about the Kamagata Maru. We hear about uh, the very discriminatory and racist policies that were used to control generations uh, of uh, immigration policies uh, into this country, essentially preferring uh, European white immigrants uh, over those coming from other places, even when they were a core part of uh, building this country. Uh, all the Chinese workers that uh, built our railways, um, the South Asian and East Asian uh, uh, families that enabled our forestry sector uh, to grow where, where it came and where into the city that it built effectively here in Vancouver. Um, but as a nation, we're still reckoning with uh, all of this history and the current day iterations of it. Uh, racism is certainly not gone in society. As a white woman, I don't experience it personally, but I 
know what I'm committed to really, really deeply integrating anti-racism into the work that I do. And while many nations and peoples over the world's history as a whole have engaged in conquest, uh, Canada is a unique case where the systems employed clearly persist into modern legal and jurisdictional frameworks. Uh, We still have an Indian Act that effectively takes decisions about Indigenous peoples' lands out of their hands. And I've worked for many years now with Indigenous communities on business and economic development. And in short, many of my colleagues and friends are shocked. How can the Premier of a Canadian province in 2022 believe that uh, whether you're vaccinated or not, whether you choose to take a vaccine that's you know, for your health, um, is a marker of the greatest discrimination that's possible in this country. I just think that's the incredibly ignorant and uh, short-sighted. Mm-hmm, certainly. Now, finally, Margareta, you mentioned your work in the Indigenous economic development space. How is that going? Well, we're uh, in the midst of planning our fourth annual event, the Indigenous Partnership Success Showcase, spending a lot of time now to develop what the program looks like. But uh, we're very, very excited. Uh, we'll shortly be announcing, uh, so I'll give uh, everyone here a sneak peek for anyone who's listening to put it in their calendars. Our conference next year is coming June 1st and June 2nd. Uh, there'll be a formal announcement next week and a chance for anyone who's really interested to go in and get some tickets. Um, but we're doing a lot of work to develop exactly what the program looks like. Uh, last year, we had about 600 people involved. Um, this year, we're hoping to go north of, a, uh, north of 2,000 participants. And ultimately, our goal is to build a shared sense of vision on reconciliation, starting with economic reconciliation. And as Danielle Smith's comments indicate, there's still a mountain between where we are today and where we need to be to attain the meaningful inclusion and all of the economic benefits that come from it uh, that are sorely overdue. I hope that uh, by doing this event and uh, engaging early on with people, we'll be able to uh, build a new vision by delivering this on a hopefully a national level. So if anyone is interested, they can probably find me on Twitter and reach out, and I'd be happy to chat about that. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too, thank you, and thank you.